It's Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. So as we've been saying this past week on Ash Wednesday, we entered this season of the church calendar called Lent. Uh, the word Lent actually comes from an old English, uh, an old Saxon word that means spring. And though it doesn't look like spring outside right now, <laughs> it's called that because Lent happens during that's why we call it that. It's 40 days, uh, excluding Sundays, that lead up to Easter. And it's intended to be, as we've said, a season of renewal. In the early church, this was a season where people who were new to the faith would prepare themselves to be baptized on Easter Sunday. Uh, it was a season uh, for people who were already baptized to reconsider their commitment to discipleship, to following Jesus it's a season for both individuals and for the whole community to recall what it is we commit ourselves to as the people of God. And as we've said, Lent invites us to acknowledge our sin, to repent of it, to declare again our dependence on Jesus as the only way to be restored. Lent invites us to remember a God, God who is holy, who's perfect, who's completely other, and God who loves sinners. God who hates nothing he has made. God who from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden has been working to restore this broken relationship between humanity and himself. Lent is supposed to be this embodied experience of our faith. It, it's not meant to be just a rote ritual that we do each year, but it's supposed to be a way of setting aside time each year to fully experience again the reality of our new life in Christ. So there's three practices that the church typically does during this time. Uh, the first is searching scripture together, which we do each Sunday. We do that in our journey groups. We do that throughout the week as we read the word of God. Um, fasting is another uh, practice that the church typically uh, engages in at this time, and giving. So fasting is a way of simplifying our lives to make space to hear from God. It's a way of practicing our dependence on God. Fasting can also be a way of living in solidarity with the poor, 
which is why we replace the things we fast from with giving to others. So um, if during Lent maybe you fast from buying coffee at Dunkin' every day, you might replace that time in your morning with just a short period of time to sit quietly with God. And you might give the money you would have spent to the Wish Project or Living Waters. Fasting and giving are ways of redirecting our desires from self-satisfaction to dependence on God and concern for others. Lent is a season of truth-telling, a season of experiencing again the reality that on our own we are hopelessly lost in sin. This season prepares us to arrive at Good Friday and at Easter with an overwhelming sense of gratitude at God's great love for us. So as we've said, excluding Sundays, uh, Lent lasts for 40 days. 40 is a pretty common number in the Bible. We find it all over the place. And these 40 days of Lent are meant to help us recall and experience some other 40 events in the Bible. 40 days helps us recall the number of days it rained while Noah and his family were on the ark. That story is meant to show us that even just saving the very best people isn't a way to fix our sin problem, right? Because as soon as Noah and his family, this very righteous family, got off the ark, they started doing terrible, unexcusable things. Forty days also reminds us of the 40 years that the people of Israel wandered in the desert because they didn't obey God. Even this people that was set apart by God, this people who was led by his presence in a cloud and fire, the people who received specific instructions for how to obey, even they couldn't obey. Forty days recalls these human examples of the inability of ours to obey God. Human inability to be holy. Human inability to choose God. And the number 40, recalls the number of days Jesus spent in the desert being tempted by Satan. But where Noah failed, where Moses failed, where every other great leader of the people of God before him failed, Jesus succeeds. In Luke 4, we heard the story of the only one who, when repeatedly faced with temptation, said no. The story of the only one who over and over and over chose God's way. That's why in liturgical churches, the first Sunday of Lent, they always read one of the gospel's accounts of the temptation of Jesus. Because the entire idea of Lent is that Jesus is the only hope we have. So this week, uh, in your Lent devotionals that Judy uh, mentioned, if you don't have one, you can grab them. They're out there. Um, This week, you're going to read Romans 5. And in Romans 5, Paul talks about the difference between Adam and and Jesus. Paul often calls Jesus the new Adam because he's the one who lived the way that Adam and Eve were intended to, in perfect community with God, in perfect obedience to him. Now, in the book of Luke, where we are today, he spends the first few chapters kind of giving Jesus credentials, his qualifications for being the Savior. He lists Jesus' ancestry to show that, yes, Jesus came from the line of David. He tells the story of Jesus' baptism, where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, where we hear God's voice speaking audibly from heaven, affirming that Jesus is, in fact, God's son. And just before this temptation story is where the genealogy is found, the line of Jesus. And it goes all the way back to Adam. And that's intentional. 
because of what comes next, this story of Jesus' temptation. Luke wants his readers to recall the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden and compare it to Jesus' temptation. Here, Jesus will face Satan just as they did, but where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam and Eve chose disobedience, Jesus will choose obedience. Where Adam and Eve chose self-sufficiency, Jesus chooses humble dependence on God. Where Adam and Eve chose to exalt themselves, Jesus will choose obedience. Where Adam and Eve choose to doubt God's promises, Jesus will choose to trust his heavenly Father. And that's the point of Luke's story of temptation and really the primary focus of the whole season of Lent. The big idea of this story, the big idea of Lent, is that Jesus alone perfectly resisted sin. So Jesus alone can rescue us from it. Jesus alone perfectly resisted sin, so Jesus alone can rescue us from it. Only Jesus, when faced with myriad of temptation, chose again and again to trust God, to obey God. That's why Jesus is the only one whose humble self-sacrifice for us was able to affect forgiveness for the sins of the whole world. That's why in the season of Lent we spend time in self-reflection and in repentance. We confront all the ways that we are just like Adam and Eve. We choose our own way. We choose sin. And in Lent, we carry all of those sins to the cross and crucify them with Jesus. And then we bury them in Jesus' tomb. That's why in, Jesus, in Lent, we participate in Jesus' journey to the cross. So we experience the death of Jesus and are raised with him to new life. This temptation of Jesus is the reversal of the temptation of Adam and Eve. It's the reversal of the temptation of the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. It's the confirmation that Jesus truly is the only one to resist sin and the only one who can rescue us from it. The story tells three ways that Jesus resisted sin where Israel failed. In each temptation, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. That's intended to show us both the similarity of the situations faced by Jesus and the people of Israel while at the same time setting up a stark contrast between Israel's response and Jesus' response. We're supposed to see ourselves in Israel, incapable of choosing to trust God. And we are to see the fulfillment of God's purpose for Israel in the person of Jesus. Salvation for the whole world by the only person able to bring it about. So we read first that Jesus resisted the temptation of self-sufficiency and instead chose dependence. The first verses of this chapter set the stage for what happens here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So after his baptism in Luke chapter 3, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. And then the text tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Holy Spirit. So just as God led the people of Israel in the wilderness, he leads Jesus. God leads Jesus into the desert, into a season of testing. Luke wants us to see God's up to something here. 
God is doing something, even in allowing Satan access to Jesus to tempt him. Luke wants to see this as a divine testing meant to show us whether or not Jesus is capable of being the answer to our sin problem, the one capable of defeating Satan and all his schemes once and for all. So Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days. He's hungry, probably near starving. And so this temptation makes sense. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan doesn't deny the reality of who Jesus is. He knows Jesus is God's son. Instead, he tries to get Jesus to exploit his status as God's son, to use his power to meet his own needs. Turn the stone into bread. It's a reasonable idea. Jesus was hungry. And Jesus, as the son of God, full of the spirit of God, could likely have turned stone into bread. He brought dead people back to life, so presumably turning a rock into bread would be a cinch. The temptation, though, is about self-sufficiency, to use his power and his agency to take care of himself apart from waiting on God to provide for him. And Jesus' response tells us that he saw through Satan's scheme. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. As we said, Jesus is quoting the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses reminded the people of what they'd been through, how God had been the one to save them, to provide for them in every moment. And in Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3, we read this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus responding from this passage of Deuteronomy is him revealing that he's aware that God has a purpose here. This is a test. It's a test to see if Jesus can do what Israel failed to do in their wilderness wanderings. Will Jesus be humble? Will he rely on God, or will he take things into his own hands? When the Israelites wandered in the desert, every single time they were low on food or water or even just bored with the food they had, they complained. They threatened to kill Moses. They talked about going back to Egypt because it was so much better there. Their failure was that they didn't trust God to provide for them, particularly provide for them in the way they wanted. It's almost comical how little the people of Israel trusted and depended on God to care for them despite the numerous examples of his ability to do just that. But Jesus here rejects the idea that he needs to act on his own, apart from God's care and provision. Yes, he is the son of God. And as God's son, he can depend on God to care for his daily needs. He will not rush in and use whatever power he has to satisfy his own ends. He will depend on God. So first, Jesus resisted this temptation of self-sufficiency and chose dependence. The second thing we see is Jesus resisted the temptation of self-exaltation and instead chose humble obedience. Verses 5 through 7 say, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. 
It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. In scripture, Satan is sometimes referred to as the prince of the world. It's a way of acknowledging that Satan is currently running free in the world, spreading sin and death everywhere from the moment Adam and Eve believed his lies in the garden. So here he says that since he's been given some authority, he's going to share it with Jesus if Jesus will just worship him. If Jesus will give up the title Son of God and instead become Son of Satan. Jesus knows his destiny is to rule all things. And he also knows that that on the way to that destiny is the cross. The way of suffering. The way of rejection. So here, Satan is trying to offer him glory without suffering. All Jesus has to do is worship Satan And then no more cross, no more arrest, no more pain. And all this will cost is Jesus' allegiance to God, to God's plan. It will cost Jesus his submission and obedience to God. Just like Satan did in the Garden of Eden, he offers what isn't actually his to give by twisting what God has planned. But again, unlike Adam and Eve, unlike the people of Israel, Jesus chose obedience. In verse 8, Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus affirms that only God is worthy of worship, that only God is God. He again quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of other peoples around you, For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Jesus rejects Satan's pretentious act at claiming sovereignty that only belongs to God. He knows that what Satan conveniently left out of his offer is the reality that he's only been given authority for a little bit of time by God. Satan has no authority of his own, The earth isn't actually his to give away. Only God rules the earth. And as the book of Daniel says over and over, the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Jesus affirms his allegiance to God and refuses to claim some cheap exaltation now that will only be a shabby substitute for what God has planned. He chooses to obey God instead. Unlike Adam and Eve who wanted to be like God and disobeyed him to get it, unlike Israel who set up a golden calf to worship, Jesus remained faithful to God and refused to worship anyone else. So Jesus resisted the temptation of self-sufficiency and chose dependence. He resisted the temptation of self-exaltation and instead chose obedience. And finally, the third temptation shows us how Jesus resisted the temptation of questioning God's word and instead chose trust. As we continue, we read about Satan's third and final temptation. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan sees that Jesus knows scripture. Jesus keeps using scripture to shut down Satan's temptations. And so now he's going to see if he can't use scripture, he's quoting Psalm 91 here, 
to get Jesus to give in. This is just like Satan in Genesis 3. Did God really say? Satan will start with what kind of sounds like God's word, but then he twists it. In the garden, he got Adam and Eve to question whether or not God was really good, whether or not God was for them, whether or not God had their best in mind. And now he's attempting to do the same with Jesus. He wants Jesus to question God's promises, to question his goodness. He wants to pit God's word against God's actions, to make Jesus see if God can really be trusted. Satan wants to test God's word and prove it false. And once again, Jesus answers Satan by quoting from Deuteronomy. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, Do not put the Lord your God to test, as you did at Massa. What happened at Massa? Okay, so Massa. It's in Exodus 17, and it tells us that at this place called Massa, the people of Israel were thirsty, so they complained, they wished to go back to Egypt, they were again about to stone Moses, because they were thirsty. And all this happened after God had miraculously delivered them through all these plagues from Egypt, after God had parted the Red Sea, after God had provided manna and quail for them in the desert. After all of that, they still asked in Exodus 17, 7, is God with us or not? Jesus is saying to Satan that throwing himself off the top of the temple just to see if God will rescue him or not is as ridiculous as the people of Israel complaining that God didn't care about them after all of what he'd done for them. It would be a useless and foolish act of questioning God's goodness, willfully ignoring all of what he had done. So Jesus sees through Satan's attempt to get him to question God's faithfulness. Israel failed that temptation over and over again. But Jesus won't. Jesus will stubbornly trust God's goodness and his plan, even in the face of suffering. We see this in another garden. The night before Jesus' death, as he tells God that he would rather not face what's coming. But he still surrenders to God's will. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows that sometimes divine rescue comes in the midst of of suffering and death, not only in being delivered from them. So instead of questioning God's goodness, he chooses trust. So in this season of Lent, we begin by looking at Jesus, at the way Jesus succeeded where every other person failed. Instead of self-sufficiency, Jesus consistently will choose dependency on God. Instead of self-exalting, Jesus will choose over and over humble obedience to God's plan. Instead of questioning God's promises, Jesus will trust God's goodness and God's presence. And after this third temptation, we see the, de- the devil left him. He conceded his defeat. That's Satan saying, I'm out. I can't talk Jesus out of obeying. And in the book of Luke, this is Luke's way of setting up Jesus' competence to the tasks ahead of him. Jesus proved himself faithful to God and his plan in a way no one else ever had. That proves that he's qualified to do the work he's now about to begin. It proves he's qualified to play a special role in God's plan of salvation. In the first parts of Luke, Luke has been announced by angels, affirmed by the voice of God, 
filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, shown to be a descendant of the royal line of David. And now he has withstood temptation in a way no one else ever has. This is intended to get us to a place where we will declare with that Roman centurion at the cross, surely this man is the son of God. The reason we begin Lent by looking at the temptation of Jesus is to help us be certain that it's Jesus we need. That Jesus is who can rescue us from the power of sin because he is the only one to ever successfully withstand its power. Jesus alone perfectly resisted sin, so Jesus alone can rescue us from it. When I consider the stark contrast between Jesus and those who came before him, Adam and Eve, the people of Israel, I cannot help but consider the stark contrast between Jesus and me. I often choose self-sufficiency. I want to work things out on my own. I so often, when I face a problem, I don't go first to God. I go to Google. I go to a friend. I find a blog or a book that can help me solve a problem. I often choose self-exaltation. I remind my kids how good they have it. I post things on social media that make me look wise or fun. I want to be known for what a good mom I am, what a great pastor I am. Harbor, sometimes I want our church to grow, not just so that more people will find their way back to God, but so that I can be the pastor of a growing church. It's ugly. I often choose to question God instead of trust him, instead of sitting secure in how many times he's cared for me, how many times he's proved his character, I demand from him. I ask if he even cares. When something hard happens, a, a young person dies, a friend loses a job, I rail at God about how unfair it all is instead of just surrendering to his goodness and care. And of course, he can take all that. (laughs) But as we consider our lives this morning, are we clear about the gap between Jesus and us? Are you, like me, convicted about the many ways we give in to the temptations that Jesus successfully resisted? And if you're like me, that's why we need this season of Lent. It's meant to be a season where we reflect on the people we are called to be as God's children, the people we were created to be in the Garden of Eden, and where we notice the gap between who we are called to be and who we are. And then we take those gaps to God, and we confess our sins, big and small. And in the season of Lent, when we bring all of that to God, we do that confident that because of the work of Jesus, the work only Jesus could do, We are freely offered forgiveness and restoration. Lent is meant to be a gift to us. A time each year where we slow down, where we take extra time to reflect on the reality of our sin, where we take extra time to celebrate the reality of Jesus' ability to rescue us from it. So may you enter Lent this year as an invitation from the God who loves you, the God who knows you, the God who wants to renew you. May you sense and accept the invitation to take a little more time to be quiet this season, a little more time to pray, a little more time to opt out of things that distract you, a little more time to empty yourself through giving, the same way Jesus emptied himself for us. 
And may this experience of more solitude, more reflection, more forgiveness, more giving, help you to experience a little more of the way of Jesus, a little more of the way of the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we gather this morning so very thankful that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves, confessing that you and you alone are the answer to our sin problem. We surrender these next weeks to you, God. Will you help renew our hearts, help us to fully engage in the invitation of this season to come face-to-face again with the reality of our sin and your goodness. Help us arrive at Easter together, transformed by this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.